Let me begin with a question. How important is unity in the church? Really, how important is it? How important is it to God? Maybe more pointedly, how important is it to you? If we were to determine how important unity is in the church through looking out at the Christian landscape over the last 2,000 years, we may come to the conclusion that it's not very important. Because there is so much division in the church. If unity is so important, why is there so much division in the church? So many splits in the church that have led to tens of thousands of denominations. Is unity really that important? Now, don't get me wrong. There are good reasons to have different churches and to have different denominations. I could give a number of good reasons. But the primary one is that sometimes a church abandons the gospel. Jesus teaches us that our unity is to be in Him. Our unity is to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if a church has abandoned the gospel, it would be reasonable that a gospel-believing Christian would leave that church and join with another gospel-centered church or be a part of a gospel-centered church. But the reasons that we often divide have nothing to do with gospel issues. We don't generally divide over first-level doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith. We rarely even divide over second-level doctrines that spell out what we believe about the church. So often, division within the body of Christ, division of churches has everything to do with our preferences. Not seeking to protect the gospel, but because we are focused on ourselves. James 4 asks a very important question. I've asked it to my children before. I've thought of it about myself, but it also applies to the church. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Division is most often a result of our selfish interests. Or because in the church we have allowed tertiary issues to rise to the top, and make them of primary importance. It leaves one wondering, when we divide over things like our own issues, our own interests, our secondary or tertiary doctrinal issues, it makes us wonder, how important is unity in the church? How important is it to you? For Paul, it was very important. So important that 
he lumps it into what our whole lives are to be about. Remember what we learned in chapter 12? All of our lives is meant to be in worship to God in view of what God has done for us in Christ. In view of God's mercies, we give our lives in worship to God. And part of worship to God is a life of love toward one another. And Paul makes it clear repeatedly in these chapters that a life of love involves unity. He calls us to live in harmony with one another. Chapters 14 and 15 show us that there was a major division within the church at Rome where there should have been harmony. There was dissonance and division. So in the face of so much division, how can we grow in unity? How can we grow in unity? We have a remarkable amount of unity, I would say, in this church, but we have room to grow, don't we? So how can we grow in our unity? And why is unity so important to God? And why should it be important to us? Paul's already given some answers to these questions in chapter 14. Chapter 15, he brings it all together. He's shown us the causes of division. Today, he centers in on the solutions, the things that will bring unity and reminds us not just how, but why unity is so important in the church. So this passage is divided into three sections, verses 1 to 2. There's exhortations that are given. You'll hear this as we read. And then verses 3 to 4, he gives reasons for obeying these exhortations, which are really grounded in the example of Christ and quotations from the Old Testament Scripture. Then in verses 5 to 6, he prays for the church. But in each of those sections, you'll notice there's a purpose clause at the end of each of them. So he's not only teaching us how to build unity, how to grow in unity in the church, he's also teaching us why it matters so much. So keep those things in mind, how and why as we read. Would you please stand? I'll be reading verses 1 to 6. This is what God's Word says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I mentioned earlier, each of the three sections of this passage teach us how to grow in unity and they teach us or give us a reason why it's important. So if you do the math, that's six points. 
one for each verse in this passage. Let's begin with the exhortation section in verses 1 to 2. What do these verses teach us first about how to grow in unity? I think they teach us this. Lift one another up and lay your agenda down. That's the first way we begin to grow in unity in the church. Lift one another up and lay your agenda down. Verse 1, Paul begins by addressing the strong in faith. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. If you're just joining us this morning, a little background may be helpful. The strong in Romans 14 and 15 are those whose consciences are in line with the Bible's teaching. Specifically in this context, they know that it's okay to eat meat. Jesus has declared all foods to be clean. So they have no misgivings, no discomfort over engaging in eating meat. The weak, on the other hand, they are not so sure that they should be eating meat. They don't have a clear conscience to do so. They think that it is a violation of God's law. So as we've seen over the last two weeks, the view of the weak, their thinking is wrong. But at the same time, while their view is wrong about eating meat, it's wrong on something that is not of first importance in biblical doctrine. And secondly, they're not sinning by not abstaining from eating meat. I I think the translation in verse 1 is a little misleading. The failings. It, it, It literally should read the weaknesses of those who are not weak. They're not, they're not sinning in what it is that they're doing. So, since it's a second level issue, it is, or a third level issue, and they're not sinning, they shouldn't have a reason to divide over this issue of eating meat. But there was division in the church. As they come together to have a meal together, the strong are bringing their pork chops. And in some way, we're not quite sure, they're pressuring, either directly or indirectly, they're pressuring the weak to engage in doing the same. If I could put it this way, they're trying to cram their views on meat down the throat of the weak. Paul's already taught them it's wrong to divide over this issue. He's already taught them, the strong, that they're doing harm to the weak by pressuring them to adopt their view. But now he addresses them in a different manner. He wants to show them what they need to do to bring healing to the division. He's showing them and he's showing us what we need to do to grow in unity. And what is it that they need to do? What is it that we need to do? We need to bear with, bear with the failings of the weak. Or as I mentioned, to bear with the weaknesses of those who are not strong. That's 
the positive command. The negative command is to not please themselves. That is, the strong, they don't have to have their way. They don't have to push their agenda. But what does it mean to bear with the weaknesses of the weak? I want to clarify this point. I think it's a really important point. When you think of bearing with somebody, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? I think it's often putting up with somebody. I'm going to bear with them. I'm just, I'm just going to put up with them. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. He's, he's not saying simply overlook their views. He's not saying simply put up with them. The, the verb here carries the idea of lifting them up. It's as though he's encouraging them to have this way of thinking or to say something like this. You know what? Okay. I, I understand you're weak in this particular area. But I'm not going to look down on you. I'm not going to overlook you and act as though you don't matter. No, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to pick you up and carry you on my back. I think that is what He wants us to do when it comes to the weak. We'll get back to who the weak are a little bit later. But for now, this idea of lifting up, I just continued this week to have this visual in my mind. Some of you are familiar with it. The story of Team Hoyt. The story of Rick Hoyt, a boy with cerebral palsy who was paralyzed, and his father, Dick Hoyt. When Rick was born, the doctors thought and said to his parents, he'll never become more than a vegetable. They actually encouraged his parents to institutionalize him. But his parents would not have it. They wanted to see this boy flourish. And so instead of sequestering him to some institution, they started to educate him. And over time, he Rick was able to learn how to communicate. And when he was 11 years old, he was given a communicate. Uh, a computer where he could make his communications known to other people. And when he was 15 years old, he said to his dad, I want us to run in a race together as a benefit for another kid in his school who was paralyzed. But the problem is, Rick couldn't run. He, in fact, couldn't even walk. But that didn't stop his father. His father, while Rick was at school during the day, started running with a bag of cement in his son's wheelchair so that he could build up his stamina. And that's how they ran their first 5K race together with dad pushing Rick in the wheelchair. They ended up doing 72 marathons. Six triathlons. On the triathlon side, he would pull Rick in a raft that was tethered to his body as he swam. During the biking part, they put him in a specially made um, thing. uh, It's like a tandem bike where he rode in the front. 
Many people would have overlooked Rick, but his father lifted him up. He carried him. That's the picture I want you to get as you see this word, bear with one another. When we see the weaknesses of others in the church, we shouldn't look down on them. We shouldn't overlook them. But friends, I'm afraid that that's what we do a lot of times. It's as if we institutionalize certain people in the church. They're marginalized on the periphery of our community with one another by the so-called more mature Christians who don't want to be bothered by them. We should not overlook anyone in the church. We should not look down on anyone. Not simply because of spiritual immaturity on certain issues, but for any number of things. Maybe somebody's not as emotionally developed as you. It's easy to say, that person is really hard to deal with. I'm just going to avoid them. Or maybe somebody, to put it in a different category, who is not at the same place that you are on the social ladder. I just won't associate with them. Friends, these are the things that create division in the body of Christ. We don't look down on people. We don't overlook people. We are called to lift people up so that we can build them up. And the only way to do that is by laying aside our agenda. I'm encouraged by what I see happening in this area with our special needs ministry in this church. I simply want us to think about where we may be overlooking and not lifting up people that are less obvious to notice, but are nevertheless being marginalized. To grow in unity, we need to lift one another up. But why is this important? It's so that others are conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 2, pay attention to the purpose clause. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Here Paul moves from addressing the strong to addressing everyone in the church. I want you to notice that. Let each of us please his neighbor. We can get into all kinds of discussions. I've had them with some of you over the last few weeks about who are the weak and who are the strong. And those are important questions, but let's all just right now stack hands on this. All of us are weak in one area or another. Am I right on that? All of us need help in one area or another. And not only that, all of us have the same marching orders within Scripture. We are called to do what is for the good of our brother or our sister in Christ. We are called to build them up. And what is the good of our neighbor? What is the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't think it is simply a general thing, although that's one way to read it. But think back with me to some familiar verses in Romans chapter 8, 
What does Paul say there? He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those whom have been called according to His purpose. So what is the good that God works in those who love Him? What is the purpose for which He calls them? We only have to read one more verse in chapter 8 to find out. His purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good. Look at the people next to you. That's the good God wants to work in them. That's the good He wants to work in you. He wants you to become more like Jesus. And when we lay aside our agenda and begin lifting one another up, that's the good that we are pursuing. Why is unity important in the church? It's for the sake of discipleship. This is what we are called to do in the church. We can't make disciples if we are divided. So when you show up to church on Sunday, if you want to grow in unity and minimize division, what do you need to do? It's all a matter of where you're looking. Are you looking at yourself? Are you looking at the needs of others? Why are you here? When you walk in those doors to the south or the doors to the west or the doors over here, regardless of which way you come in, what are you thinking you are here to do on Sunday morning? It's very clear in God's Word. One of the things you are called to do is to seek to build others up so that they would become more like Jesus. When that is your focus, if that is your focus, I promise you, the petty differences that we have with one another will be minimized and people will grow in unity. So we look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. But that's not all. We are also called to look to Christ's example and to the Scriptures. Verse 3, Paul says, For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Why should we not please ourselves and instead seek to please others? Because the one that saved us, the one that we follow, He didn't please Himself. Was there ever a greater understatement in the Scriptures. We're celebrating during this Advent season the incarnation of the Son of God. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that although He was in the form of God, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Or as we sang earlier, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. If there was ever a person who didn't look to his own interests, but the interests of others, it was the Son of God. But it's not simply the incarnation that shows the great humility of Christ. Ultimately, or the, the most remarkable expression 
of Christ's other interest posture was in the passion. Paul continues in Philippians 2 to say, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it's that death of Christ that Paul has in mind in Romans 15, verse 3, when he quotes Psalm 69, saying, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's David speaking but pointing to what Christ would accomplish. The sins against God would fall on Jesus. The reproaches of God's enemies would fall upon Him. And whose reproaches fell on Christ? Whose sins fell on Him? It was our sin that held Him there. Until it was accomplished. Paul says in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us. And that while we were sinners. Christ died for us. Or in verse 10. While we were his enemies. We were reconciled. To God. By the death of his son. Jesus didn't seek to please himself. He was not thinking of his own interests. But the interests of others. If Christ did that for us, if he laid down his life for us, I mean, is it really that big of a thing to ask us to lay down our agenda and to lift up those for whom Christ paid such a big price? So how do we grow in unity in the church? We look to Christ's example But we also learn from the Scriptures, as verse 4 says. All of the Scriptures were written for our instruction. But why were they written? What is the purpose behind the work of Christ and the writings in the Scriptures? It leads us to the second reason why unity in the church is so important. It's so that we can have hope when it's hard. Now this may seem to be a weird reason to pursue unity within the church. So I pursue unity so I can have hope? Well, that's actually the way that Paul argues in the book of Romans, in a sense. Look at what he says again in verse 4. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We see this logic all the way back in chapter 5 where Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, get the logic, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So when we endure in the faith, I think this is what Paul is saying, when we endure in the faith over the long haul, when it's hard, We are actually proving, in a sense, that our faith is genuine. And as we get that feedback, that our faith is genuine, that increases our hope because we know that those who have placed their faith in Christ, they're secure. They will never be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So as we work 
in the hard work of building others up, of building unity within the church, that actually has this net positive effect in our lives of reminding us of the hope, producing hope within us. Carrying the burdens of others is heavy lifting. Laying down your life isn't easy. Denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, it is painful. We're not denying any of that. But in the hard, we have hope. All of those things that are difficult will one day give way to glory, which is eternal. So, why do we pursue unity? The second reason is so that we can have hope when it's hard. But notice that Paul is not just saying that endurance in seeking unity produces hope. He's also saying that we get encouragement from the Scriptures. Paul, uh, Psalm 69, it not only points to Jesus and the Gospel, it does that. But it also gives us encouragement to continue in the faith. So Christ gives us hope, but also the Scriptures give us hope. They teach us how it is that we are to endure very practically. For example, Psalm 69. What does David do when things are hard? He goes to the Lord in prayer. He confesses his sins. What happens when things are getting tricky in his life? He actually is thinking about others. He says, oh, I don't want others to be affected by what's going on with me. He's thinking about others. But maybe most importantly of all of that, in the hard, he cries out to God and claims faith in the promises of God. God will keep his covenant commitment to David and to his people. That that, that is so real in his life that he's willing to praise God even before God answers his prayer. You see how this works? That in the scriptures we we see Christ, but we also see an example of how we are to endure in the faith and to have hope. So what is the application of this verse to our lives? Quite simply, if you want to build unity, if you want to have hope, you've got to read your Bible. You've got to show up to church to hear it read, to hear it preached. You've got to study it on your own, in your family, in smaller groups within the church. It gives us help. It's very practical. And it gives us So we lift up others so they can become like Jesus. We look to Christ and to the Scriptures so that we can have hope. Let's look now third at the way we grow in unity. We look to God to give unity. We look to God to grant unity. Verses 5 to 6 are a prayer. They don't tell us how to pray. I mean, they don't call us to pray, but I think it's reasonable to see that is an application. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. There is a remarkable connection that I don't want you to miss before I make the main point that I want to make here. A remarkable connection 
between verse 4 and verse 5. We just read in verse 4 that through the Scriptures, we get help. Through the Scriptures, we're helped in enduring and we are encouraged. But now we read that it is God who is the God of endurance and encouragement. It is God who helps us. Are these contradictory statements? What is it? Is it through, through the Scriptures that we endure and that we're encouraged? Or is it through God that we endure and are encouraged? It is both. And hear me on this. One of the main ways that God helps to encourage us and to endure, that God does that, is through His Word. It is through His Word. And so we must give ourselves to the Word of God. We shouldn't disconnect the Bible from God. It is God who has breathed out the words on this Scripture. And so He uses it to help us to endure and to encourage us. Give ourselves to the Word of God. I've already made that point. I just wanted you to see the connection between verse 4 and verse 5 because it's explosive in our doctrine of what the Bible is. But the main point I want to say here is that we must also give ourselves to prayer. Ask God to use His Word to accomplish unity in the church so that we would as Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Literally, it's so that we would be of the same mind. That we would be of the same mind. There's this connection between this language of being in harmony with one another and everything that we've been learning in Romans 12 to 15. And I want, I want you to see it because it's, it's really remarkable. In Romans 12, Paul says we are to live a life of worship, right? How do we do that? Through not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead being transformed by the renewal of our mind. And then the first picture of having a renewed mind is Paul says in verse 3, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. He also tells us to not be haughty. That means to be high-minded about ourselves, but instead to associate with the lowly. So a person who's being transformed by the renewal of their mind, they're going to think about others in the body and think about themselves the way that God thinks about them. And that is necessary to build harmony within the church, to be of the same mind. A mind that looks not to our own interests, but the interests of others. That's the vision. That's the vision of what Paul is calling us to in the church. But in verse 5, he's showing us that this is supernatural. This is something only God can do. You're not just going to, by your own muscle, make yourselves less selfish and more loving toward one another. God has to do that work in your life. God has to do that work among us. So we look to His Word, but we also look to Him 
and prayer. That's the final way we grow in unity in the church. Let's look now at the final reason why this is so important. It's so we can glorify Him together. Verse 5, it's a prayer for unity. Verse 6 gives us the purpose of the unity. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity is very important. I hope you've come to see that. But it's not the most important thing. The reason it's so important is because as the church is increasingly unified, we are doing the thing reflecting what is most important, and that is the glory of God. We are glorifying God together when we are united with one another. Not simply glorifying God as individuals, That's important. But glorifying God together. We don't gather here to just have time with Jesus with a few hundred other people in the room. I hope you are having time with Jesus and connecting with Him. But we come and do this together. We get our praise on to God. But not just as individuals. We do that as a body of Christ. John Piper is famous for saying, missions exist because worship doesn't. His point is that missions is not ultimate. Worship is ultimate. Missions exist because the world is worshiping false gods instead of the one true God. And they need to be told about what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ to save them from their sins, but bring them back into right relationship with God and worship of Him. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The same could be said about discipleship in the church, sanctification in our lives. God is making us more like Jesus. Why? Because worship does not exist to the measure that it is supposed to exist. We are divided in the church, or to the degree that we are divided in the church, we are not fulfilling the ultimate purpose for which God redeemed us, which is to glorify God. In the new heavens and the new earth, Get this picture in your mind. There will be a multitude so great that no one can number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language. And they will be standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, waving palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud and united voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That day, we are anticipating. But when we gather together as a unified body in Christ to sing praise to God, it is a foretaste of that day. We are putting on display in the church God's great work 
of salvation, of uniting all kinds of people into one body, into one family. The watching world should see this and take note. Even the angels and the demons are looking on and taking note that God is doing an amazing thing in our midst to the praise of His glory. When we are united in one heart, when we are united in praise with one voice, we anticipate that day when we will be fully united in heart and in voice. When we fulfill the purpose for which we were saved, which is to bring glory to God. So, church, how important is unity within the body? How important is it? It is of tremendous importance. At the very core for which God sent His Son 2,000 years ago was so that we would together give glory to God. Our unity couldn't be much more important than that. So let us pray that God would continue to do a work in our hearts. Father, we thank you for your love for us in Christ that we celebrate this Advent season. That the one who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. that the Son of God became a man so that we could become children of God, united in your family. We give you great thanks. We pray that that reality of the unity in the body of Christ would become increasingly visible within the church. Work in us that which is pleasing to you in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord.